Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 12th, 2021. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary. Christine Rosen is out this week. With us in her stead today, Washington Free Beacon editor, Eliana Johnson. Hi, Eliana. How are you? Hi, John. I'm doing well. How are you guys? We are good. Also with us, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Noah Rothman, associate editor. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Eliana, you are a Twin Cities native, and things are not good in the Twin Cities this morning uh, following a uh, police-involved shooting uh, and uh, uh, yesterday in a suburb of Minneapolis, right? Or is that a neighborhood of Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center? I'm not quite clear. Uh, it is a suburb. Uh, I, I would call it a suburb rather than a right. neighborhood, but... Um... Yeah, you're right. Uh, A night of rioting and looting taking place in Minneapolis and the backdrop to the most recent shooting about which we don't have a whole lot of details um, is, of course, the Chauvin trial, which uh, there's just a tremendous amount of security. My dad had been going in uh, and said it's just astonishing. The courthouse is totally barricaded. And so I think this uh, this happened when the city is already a tinderbox, and it didn't. It's not going to take much now for for riots and looting to break out in Minneapolis, just because of the uh, emotionally and politically charged atmosphere during this trial. Great, because uh, you know that's 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 uh, that that's yeah. As as you were saying before, um, you know, it's like this. The city is a tinderbox. Uh, we we may have been lulled into some, I mean, just it's been, you know, uh, months since the summer and the, and the, you know, the, the, the hottest points in the summer, the trial has started. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, we are sitting in a country that could go up at any moment. Uh, I, I was spe- speculating at some point that, um, merely the goings on in the courtroom it's, itself rather than the verdict could trigger you know riots and 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 terrible thing particularly i think when the when the defense starts staging its own case obviously the prosecution's making the case now and the defense is is responding as we talked about last week the defense did um i think reasonably well in establishing that uh the the cause of death uh, of of uh, George Floyd's death was 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 not an open and shut uh, case that had been caused by Derek Chauvin, our friend uh, Andy McCarthy, who does some of the best legal writing, particularly from the right uh, in America. Uh, watching the trial has concluded that the that the prosecution did pretty well actually in establishing enough evidentiary grounds to say that Derek Chauvin's conduct with George Floyd was at least materially involved in his death to make the case that while other factors, including his heart condition and and drugs in his system, may have contributed, that it's enough for the physical trauma that Floyd may have been subjected to to have been implicated in his death to make the case according to criminal law that Chauvin was responsible. Um, 
So uh, a lot of people last week were looking, uh, who were not just inclined to go along with the conventional wisdom, were looking at this and saying, hmm, the defense is... The defense is getting a lot of admissions here, but but according to Andy, basically the the standard by which to determine whether or not Chauvin was responsible is um, is lower than I would have thought. Uh, but you know, he knows criminal law like the back of his hand. Was was a, a, a U.S. attorney, you know, lead lead prosecutor in many high profile cases. And so I, I would, I would hesitate to argue with him on any front. So John, your um, initial impression of how this would go is that the uh, dispassionate conduct of justice in a criminal court would not have the effect that it traditionally does of sapping the enthusiasm among activists for the uh, confirmation and restatement of their own conclusions about how this went and who is at fault and what's what should happen next, namely a violent response to social injustice. Um, do you still, I mean, the evidence that we have suggests that that's the case, but do you still see that as being the case? We're now a week and a half into this trial, maybe two weeks into this trial, I'm not sure. Um, and we have, you know, a very uh, methodological prosecutorial statement of the evidence um, which seems to reinforce a lot of the conclusions of the activist class, although not to the extent that you see them restated in the streets. But we haven't gotten to the defense phase yet. So do you still see that this trial, whatever its outcome, has the, uh, is, is, will be the cause for more social unrest, both in Minneapolis and elsewhere? Oh, Sure. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think uh, that, that. In other words, that, there's nothing that can happen in the course of this trial to avert that outcome. Yeah, I mean, Chauvin, Chauvin can be found guilty on all charges, and then, and then that won't happen if Would Chauvin it not? is not. Because, no. because you can already see, and Eliana might want to talk about this um, from an episode that we saw last night, uh, where you know you have a lot of people out in the streets protesting a, the shooting of, a, of another black motorist, regardless of the conditions that precipitated that. Um, and on a, you know, having very limited knowledge of what happened last night, the, the events do seem a little ambiguous, but the conclusion that was reached by the protesters was not ambiguous and was immediate and confirmed their priors and resulted in, in unrest. So even if there was a conviction on all counts, it's not going to be a maximalist conviction. He's not going to be convicted on murder one. So there's always going to but, be something. Well, what I mean is that, is that uh, uh, the, the notion that uh, the, the trial happened and it was done. And then the result is the result that uh, people who otherwise would have rioted was the result that they sought. Then obviously that drains the energy out of, any rioting in response to that, whether other events happen that create a mood. And one of the weird things about what happened in Brooklyn center yesterday was it was preceded by this other story in Norfolk, Virginia about another guy in a car pulled over. And if you watch the, you know, if you watch the footage and all of that, um, you basically were seeing a, a two police officers, one of whom lost it, um, and 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 in the course of a 
in the course of a meeting with a driver who was talking to him to the police officer like he was a a four-year-old having a tantrum because he was so in a store like a parent with a four-year-old just trying to figure out how to get out of this before everything exploded and everything that he said and everything that he did was only causing the officer to go more to get more and more and more heated and to start doing things like spraying him in the eyes with uh you know tasering him and spraying him in the eyes with pepper spray for the sin of not getting out of his car which he clearly didn't want to do because he thought this guy was crazy and could do just about anything that was a predicate to what happened on Sunday because that stuff came out on Saturday so we have something that's may I mean that officer was fired uh yet yesterday um uh by the Norfolk Police Department so something that was like a clear case of like something where you're like, oh my god, like uh, you know, so th- this 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 cop lost it, and this guy could have gotten shot, uh, and he did everything right, including like not getting out of the car, uh, pulling over in a lighted area so that there wasn't going to be any ambiguity about what was going on, and all of that. Hey, you know. I had thought when the trial began, and I thought this even in advance of the trial, I was bracing myself for this. I thought that we were going to see much more unrest uh, from the start of this throughout. I, I thought as news trickled out from the trial that um, that itself would um, cause a lot more unrest and protest um, than we've seen at all. In fact, it's 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 taken uh, a police shooting or or in combination with the predicate case that John just described <clears throat> for there to be um, any any response at all. And um, I have to think that the reason I had thought in advance that, that it was going to provoke much worse reaction all throughout the trial and hasn't is because I was still sort of trained by the Trump years. Um, I think uh, had Trump still been in office, um, it, it, there would be a sort of um, atmospheric tension to it all that would have produced the kind of um, uh, relentless, explosive reaction that we, we haven't really seen to it up until this point. Um, I think, I think it, it, in part, uh, media would have been contributing to it in a way um, that would have provoked that. That's possible. Yeah. I mean, that's a good theory. I'm sorry, very briefly, but... The, the con- when we see these very high profile trials where every moment of it is being broadcast and dissected and the evidence is being pre- presented to the public in a prosecutorial fashion, it does drain the passion from the moment. That's what happened during the, the, the Trayvon Martin killing trial. I always forget his name. Zimmerman, um, where a lot of people in the press expected violence after that event. And there was none in part because we were all privy to the proceedings. Every moment of this was dissected and we were all presented with the ambiguities and the definitive conclusions. And we came to a, a, a definitive, a determined conclusion based on the evidence, not the lack of evidence. The lack of evidence is what precipitates these kind of violent outbursts. I also wonder this, this is like a trial of the century. Uh, you know, I was in sixth grade when the, when the OJ trial went down and I remember uh, you know, every nightly newscast, we, we lived in a world that was less fragmented. And so we were all, I remember my parents tuning in every night to like, you know, watch an hour on OJ. And 
Uh, I wonder in part, um, the Chauvin trial is making the news, but it's not in the same, I think, sort of all-consuming way that the uh, that the OJ case did because there are so many more sources of information. And I wonder the extent to which um, the people inclined to protest this stuff are actually following the granular details of the trial, um, which is why I think John may be right that there, there could be... Um, we might only see a reaction when we get the result. Right. Or, or if the defense says something that is particularly provocative during its, its moments when it's running the, the art, when it's running the show, that that's, that was my, my supposition was that because it's being broadcast, because, because you can sort of see it or things are going on, you know, a clip of half a sentence of the defense lawyer saying something could you know, we see it on social media. I mean, it could trigger anything, you know. And so uh, uh, what's going to matter here is the verdict. Um, there was a presumption that the OJ verdict had it gone the other way, could have led to, you know, extreme civil unrest, even though that was a case in which, though it's clear people sort of, some people clearly sort of wanted him to get off. Uh that was somewhat like indefensible. We later learned. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it was somewhat in, I mean, the, what his, what happened was indefensible among other things the entire country saw him fleeing, right? We, we saw him trying to, we saw AC a. Cowling's driving him in that Ford Bronco, uh, you know, down the highway in a, in a, in a low speed <laughs> chase um, seeming to, you know, look to flee to Mexico or something. So, so that was a m- more ambiguous case than this. Even if the case uh, against Derek Chauvin um, is weaker but, than than a lot of the than a lot of the activists and people seem to think it is. But but in that, I mean, that's the the highest profile example of prosecutorial bungling. Like the whole country was privy yeah. to the moment when the prosecution failed to prove its case, and it was so glaringly obvious that they had failed in their pursuit of this, of convincing the jury of this charge that everybody, everybody knew it. Everybody could, you couldn't say, well, I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't so bad. It was terrible. I mean, everybody knew it. So it maybe took a little bit of the sting out of what a lot of people think was and remains a a gross injustice because the conduct of justice was not definitively uh, pursued by the prosecution. So look, guys, um, you're hearing me on this podcast right now, uh, but I am I'm tasked with the I'm I'm charged with the task of suggesting uh, to you that you listen, as I've been telling you every week, to Dan Senor's post Corona podcast, the most interesting new podcast of the last several months from my perspective. Uh, the portrait uh, attempt to look and at America and the world after Corona and what the causes are going to be. And the reason that this is weird for me to be doing this is that I am the guest this week on post Corona. Um, So since you listen to me here, you may say to yourself, well, why should I listen to you there? That's five hours a week on the commentary podcast. Why should I listen to you there? And the answer is that Dan and I have a pretty interesting and pretty original conversation about the future of cinema and in particular, the future of theater going uh, and movie going to the multiplex uh, in the wake of 
a of of nearly a year in which many, if not most, uh, of the theaters in the United States were either uh, shut down or 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 closed, um, uh, you know, intermittently or whatever, and uh, and under these at the same time that this happens, you also have massive conglomerate takeovers of movie studios, in particular AT and T taking over Warner Brothers. And an entirely new set of calculations on the part of the studios about what will make them money and what helps them. Uh, and it turns out that theaters don't help them very much if what you're trying to do is gin up the stock price, which is much benefited much more at the moment by uh, by looking like you're being successful in streaming than that you're making money at the box office. And so... Uh, the second largest studio has basically gone with an uh, with a strategy to maximize its streaming content, and this may destroy movie theaters. And if you like movie theaters, you really want to don't want that to happen. This may be a natural trend after a, a century of movie going. We talk about all this; it's pretty interesting. I'm following in you know I'm following in the footsteps of much better podcasts with Dan Casinoar, as far as I'm concerned, like the one with Neil Ferguson on previous pandemics and the one with Billy Bean on the history on what's going to happen with sports and the one with uh, Yonatan Adiri, uh, Israeli entrepreneur, about how how Israel succeeded so wildly with its vaccination campaign. So that's Dan Casinoar's post-corona. Get it at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your fine podcasts. And uh, torment yourself with my voice yet a little more this week, or enjoy it. Either way, it's up to you. Um, so, Noah, it's, uh, it's I wouldn't call it victory lap time for you. I might call it victory lap time for people who can't actually claim the victory lap. But this weekend, um, the Natanz nuclear enrichment facility uh, in Iran was mysteriously hit with a blackout that seems to... Uh, have been much more than a blackout. Um, and, of course, the immediate thought is that uh, Israel has has worked its, uh, its um, secret will yet again to retard and degrade uh, Iran's nuclear program. And it happened at an interesting moment because, of course, last week began the talks, you know, feeling out talks about how to restore the Iran deal with the United States. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was in Israel when the strike, when this, I do call it a strike, when this action of some sort that appears to have taken the Tans out by destroying its independent power uh, plant, I think, I'm trying to read between the lines because it's a little unclear, but apparently Natanz has its own, it's off the power grid and it has its own power facilities and somehow those were dealt with in some fashion in a way that will make it impossible for the centrifuges to spin and refine the uranium for several months at least. And Noah, you, we, so do you consider this part, I don't, we, we were talking about how you, were victory lapping last week saying that uh, America would do anything to get back in the deal. And now did this happen? Cause America was trying to get back in the deal. We don't even know. Yeah. I mean, that, that might be a stretch too far. They, the, um, uh, maybe quite possibly, I mean, the, uh, the general's uh, physical location and the timing of these events makes it hard to, 
see this as anything other than a, a pretty unsubtle message to the administration. Nevertheless, I will take a, a victory lap on the timeline. Last week, and Thursday, I briefly mentioned this just to lighten the mood at the end of the show, but I'll revel in it a little bit more. Last week, I noted that the administration on background was telling reporters that their desire, um, the, the administration's fondest desire, was to see some sort of a framework in place before the June elections in Iran in order to give the um, you know supposed moderates in the regime something to campaign on and to blunt the ever-looming threat of hardliners from coming to power because the hardliners are always on the verge of power and they don't want a deal and anybody who's against a deal is a hardliner and so the hardliners need to have you know be batted down and so we need a framework in place and the easiest way to do that would be to flip a switch on sanctions because a first a, a you know a, a good faith um, effort to move towards uh, the West and the United States by Iran would involve uh, de-enrichment or the shuttering of centrifuges, which today is a little more involved than just turning off sanctions. So what the administration did within 12 hours of writing that post was um, commit to the easing of sanctions that are not consistent with the 2015 agreement. So that was my little victory lap. The timeline since then was that the, the I think it was the following day that uh, Iran celebrated the, uh, the reopening of more centrifuges for more enrichment capacity. And uh, that was followed the day after by this strike, sabotage, whatever you want to call it. Um, but so the timeline is the Biden administration says we want a deal. Iran says it's all or nothing. The Biden administration gives a little bit. Iran takes a little bit. And then Israel uh, acts in defense of its own national interests uh, perhaps to the frustration of Biden administration officials, because they're telling the press as soon as they could that this was an Israeli operation, throwing this, the Israeli uh, forces under the bus, and Israel, Israel subsequently confirmed it. So everything that you thought was going to happen with this administration, if you're a critic of the process that got us the JCPOA in 2015, has happened. They have behaved precisely as their critics said they would. Um, and we have no indication to suggest they're not going to keep doing that. They're going to keep behaving um, in the same way that we saw Wendy Sherman behave, you know, uh, as much as we think Anthony Blinken's a more sober actor in the State Department, the State Department is the State Department. They will continue to pursue the same kind of uh, procedures and methods and processes that they always have um, to the at the expense of, in our view, the uh, United States national interest and the interest of our allies in the region, not just of Israel, but the Sunni states. So okay, so I think, I think oh, you know much like in the Obama administration, the outcome of what the Biden administration is trying to do is predetermined. Uh, the timing is not, but I have no doubt that they will get back into the deal. And you can already see them lowering the bar in that on the campaign trail, Biden said he wanted a strengthened deal. Tony Blinken told uh, the Senate the same thing a few weeks ago. And lo and behold, going into these indirect negotiations with the Iranians, Rob Malley uh, comes out and, and says that they merely want to get back into the existing deal. So gone is the desire to strengthen the deal. Uh, maybe not the desire, but certainly they're willing to uh, play by the Iranians' rules on this. And I think by contrast to the Trump administration, the high-level policymakers in this administration are driving towards an end goal, getting back in the deal, that the rank-and-file uh, officials in the State Department agree with. Uh, the Trump team, uh, you know, was thwarted by 
by many of those people who simply didn't uh, didn't share their views on global affairs. I just, so ordinary. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I just want to make a, a point about the matter of uh, Israel's uh, Israel and timing here. Um, if if Israel is behind the explosion and the blackout at, at the Tons, as I suspect if it is. Not, I want to know who it was because that's cause right. Those people are awesome. Uh, yeah, that's right. There's a um, free beacon man of the year competition going on, guys. Yeah, yeah here we go. <laughs> um, the thing about this is that, you know, uh, Americans tend to view this as, you know, um, through a prism of, you know, well, how uh, is Israel responding to what America is up to uh, here with Iran? Um, Iran is a perpetual threat to Israel, and Israel is perpetually, therefore, working on plans to frustrate um, and uh, retard uh, Iran's nuclear program and its defenses generally. And uh, it works on these high-tech uh, uh, efforts continuously. And it, it, sometimes it has only windows of opportunity to act, to put these plans into motion. Um, that, I think, is a lot more determinant of when, when they act and how they act than, um, than trying to send some sort of... Um, diplomatic by other means uh, message uh, to the U.S. or other people engaging in Iran. I mean, I think I think that's a very important point. And I, I was too flip and cutesy in, in, in introducing this by, by mentioning that. Obviously, the whole point about this is these are incredibly dangerous, incredibly tricky operations that involve, it, it looks like, I mean, this is not something where you flip flip a switch there was probably sabotage involved which means you have to have people on the ground which means you got people on the ground in a hostile country with a very powerful and very strong and very uh, penetrating uh, army and 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 uh, and you know special forces and all of that who have to be eluded then you have to somehow exfil those people that do that operation or find them get them out of harm's way and all of that. Like the notion that you're like, oh, well, Lloyd Austin's going to be here on Saturday. Let's let's send them the message when, you know, when we can. That's sort of not, you know, it's like you might hear, oh, you know, the guard at Tower 2, uh, you know, his his son is getting married and so he'll be drunk that night. I mean, it could be, we don't even know. I mean, that that's probably well, more likely. Rise and Kill First, the history of the Mossad. Uh, no, you mean uh, Ronan Bergman? Is that Ronan, Ronan, Ronan Bergman's Ronan book? Because, yeah, no. Well, it does clue you into all these different factors that you wouldn't think about. And and also, one of the things I've been surprised by is I think of the Mossad as sort of this uh, totally fearsome, indestructible force. But, like, they make a, they've made mistakes, too, and things didn't work, a lot of them. And that's uh, that's been one of the most fascinating takeaways um, but exactly, I think Garden Tower Two uh, is, you know, drunk. Yeah. It's much more likely to be a factor than Austin right. is in Israel. Right. I mean, but what is what is important is the liberal reaction a little bit because first of all, we had an editorial in the New York Times on Friday um, published uh, deliberately, obviously, to sort of help push forward the case that the negotiations back into the JCPOA were valuable and important by saying that the Trump strategy has failed. Maximum pressure, as it was called, has failed, and it's a failure. We need to try another strategy. Um, how it's failed, I we don't really know. Like, it's not clear to me what standards, including looking at the New York Times' piece, um, says 
it doesn't even it doesn't make sense why you know Iran's economy is hurting it, the more that Iran's economy hurts the harder it, it, it the more costly it is in opportunity cost terms for them to spend all the money that they want to spend on on their nuclear program so you know part of the point here is to raise to raise the pain level you can't stop them from doing what they might do illicitly except the way that Israel is apparently doing it but you can certainly put them in a position in which every time they have to make a decision they have to make a decision that means they're not going to do something else with the money that they have and that's part of the reason you have a pressure campaign so you know, we have no evidence to suggest that that's failed in some fashion. And no, then, the only argument that yeah. makes sense is that uh, they Iran when after the deal was abrogated, Iran engaged in uh, enrichment of uranium in a naked, blatant fashion that was verifiable. And and it, to the extent that you couldn't verify the terms of the JCPOA, that's arguable. But nevertheless, they they went on an enrichment frenzy. Not the argument that is being made by the people who are talking to the to the reporters on background about their objectives for these negotiations, which is to soften the regime. In 2015 and 2016, we saw as much brutal repression in Iran, the suppression of demonstrations in the streets, the, uh, the material support for the Assad regime, the destabilization of Lebanon and Bahrain, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, that was supposed to be forthcoming when we finally sidelined the hardliners in Tehran and Washington, D.C., according to Barack Obama, the Republican Party and the and the theocrats in, in Tehran were two sides of the same coin. But the fact that they're retreating back to that argument is a terrible sign, a horrible sign that they've learned absolutely nothing. Right. So, let, so let's move on from that to the response to the event itself, uh, to, the, to the degrading of its enrichment uh, facilities. So I just want to read you one of the foremost spokesmen for nuclear nonproliferation among liberals, former head of the Plowshares Fund, which is dedicated to nuclear nonproliferation, uh, uh, Joseph Cirincioni, um, here was his tweet on Sunday in response, quote, Israel humilita- humiliates the Secretary of Defense while he is visiting Israel by launching an illegal attack on facilities in another nation. It is not at war with that nation, but these attacks threaten to scuttle Joe Biden talks with that nation and drag us into war, unquote. Um, Israel is at war with Iran. I don't know what the hell... Sirisioni is talking about here. Israel is at war. Iran has declared its intention to destroy Israel and to drive it into the sea and to generate nuclear weapons in order to eradicate it. Um, that was the stated policy of the president of Iran, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, for uh, many years. This is the rhetoric that is used. They are at war. And the whole point is that they have to do what is necessary for them to prevent the worst possible outcome, which is Iran getting a bomb that it can then use against Israel. Now, did it humiliate Lloyd Austin? We don't know. Lloyd Austin didn't look humiliated. Lloyd Austin, for all we know, is a guy who looks at this and says, you know what, this is probably pretty good. Like, this gives us the, you know, it's good that Iran's nuclear capacity is degraded. Like in the in the large scheme of things, better that Iran's nuclear capacity is degraded than in that it's marching ahead full steam. And then there's this other weird thing, which is people 
both who support it and oppose it acknowledge that Iran's leverage has been degraded to some extent in this negotiation by the fact that it isn't char- it now has a problem with charging ahead. Why is it bad if Iran's leverage is degraded in a negotiation with the United States? We're the United States. We want to have more leverage than the person that we're negotiating with. Oh, this is really terrible. You know, the housing market just got a lot stronger. So when I'm negotiating to buy your house, I'm going to have to give you a lot more money. That's really good. I'm really glad that I'm going to have to give you a lot more money to buy your house. Like, that's how you're supposed to react to the leverage problem because the whole but this was this was the problem with the with with the iran deal the first time around it's same thing it's 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 an imitation of a deal it's not a real deal right it's a it's the 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 the, the point is to arrive at the appearance of a deal um which has nothing to do with with um leverage um it's 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 getting to some version of a yes and that's it. There is a there is a weird. I mean, this has been going on, you know, in the course of my entire life, pretty much. Uh, you know, I was born in 1961, so you know, when I 1963 was the first nuclear, this the first sort of nuclear non-proliferation treaty. Uh, you know, whatever negotiation between uh, the U.S. and uh, and 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 the Soviet Union. Then we go on to salt, salt to start this. There is a. Among a certain type of foreign policy thinker, this is the be-all and end-all. Agreements, deals, uh, transnational negotiations. This is what the world is made for. This is how things are supposed to be. This is where at particular... And then there's this whole argument, like, what you really need to do is make deals with enemies. You don't need to make deals with friends because it's enemies who threaten you. So if you can make your enemy someone that you're in a deal with, then great, it's fantastic. Because then they'll you and he, they will hew to the same standards and then you can turn your enemies into your friends whereas what we know is that the enduring successes of the post-war world are about deals that are made with friends right nato asean um you know uh even in in europe though we could talk about this in different ways the common market like these are ne- deal deals and negotiations that are made with countries that have a common interest and that are not antagonistic because, of course, countries that are antagonistic have absolutely no reason other than threats or danger to stay in a concord and to make that concord grow closer. But that is the opposite of the way that the foreign policy establishment has been trained to think from college onward about international relations, which is you deal with your enemies, not your friends. And it is a weird set of calculations i just have to say to like be angry that the person we're negotiating with is in a worse position today than it was yesterday and then you say that's terrible but it's that's not, the worst thing that could have happened but i you know i i'm you know maybe i'm like you know criminally cynical here but i don't even know that they think that that the administration thinks it's going to turn iran into our friends uh in the event of a deal i think i think it's i think it's that they want credit for resuming a deal. Um, and that's it. And it doesn't matter how, I mean, you know, but they'd rather not have to deal with a, you know, a, an aggressive, aggressively mil- militant Iran afterward, but it doesn't really matter if Iran hues to it or not in the future. So it's not like, so it's more like, you know, someone wanting a, a, a picture with a celebrity, 
you don't, you, you don't want to irritate them. You want to get in and out. You want, you want to get the picture, leave them alone. Don't give them any reason to brush you off. You know, that, that's, also, that's the difference. I think who's the they we're talking about. If the they is like the powers that be in the Biden administration, I generally agree with that. But there's another they, which is like, you know, the left wing critics of the Biden administration, which is Joe Serencioni and the Quincy Institute and company. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but these people seem to believe that on the whole, America, America is more a force for bad things happening in the world than it is a force uh, for good and therefore a deal that constrains America's actions and empowers other countries, uh, China, Iran, those are good deals from their point of view. And that's pre- they precisely want uh, the U.S. to go into this with less leverage. Uh, again, I'm differentiating like the Tony Blinkens of the world from um, from the Joe Serencioni's, but uh, it's worth noting that the Tony Blinkets of the world, they're getting, they're under a whole lot of political pressure from the left flank on this. And I think there have been uh, first an article in Jewish Currents, then the same article written in the New York Times and the same article written in Politico about, uh, you know, Ben Rhodes's criticisms of uh, the administration for not being back in the deal already. Right. We've well, noticed. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, this is, this is a, this is a very important point because it goes to a lot of, uh, liberal to left interest in international agreements, take the Paris Climate Accords or something like that. Much of the thinking on climate change is that we need international agreements to constrain the United States, to put the United States in a headlock while, uh, because how else are our evil capitalist overlords going to be controlled in destroying our climate somehow we need to go in and then be able to have our president be able to say to you know the fracking people oh sorry you can't do this anymore because we made an agreement and you can't uh you know we got to make sure that there's no no pipeline there because uh you know i'm sorry 147 countries signed this agreement and it's just horrible now talking once again about uh, energy, as I just did, and Iran, and uh, all of that brings to mind the fact that this is a very, very peculiar investment and financial atmosphere that we find ourselves in, uh, as ever, particularly coming uh, out of the pandemic and all of the kinds of and a political change from right to left in the presidency. And that's why you got to talk to our friends and read our friends and consider the advice of our friends at the Bonson Group that $2.8 billion financial management services firm by coastal uh david bonson and his 28 colleagues uh use the uh the the most um granular data uh the most serious analysis and uh, and an unparalleled understanding of the interplay between politics and policy to give advice to their clients and to everybody else who may not even be their clients about what is going on both daily weekly and and annually in the markets in there too Internet publications, thedctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. You've heard me talk about them before. Go find them, thedctoday.com and and dividendcafe.com. We're in a very weird moment. Uh, We're going to talk about this in a minute. You know, everything was looking fantastic until yesterday, or maybe it's still looking fantastic. We got news that maybe there was a problem with the Pfizer vaccine and the South Africa variant. What's that going to mean? How are you supposed to handle your finances when uh, the, you know, the possible escape from 
the the virus um there may you know or at least you're going to hear from a lot of people that people are going to start getting more nervous and less celebratory than they've been over the last couple of weeks so the bonson group dividendcafe.com the dctoday.com the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti that is the financial services industry and we thank them for sponsoring the commentary podcast so yes very alarming headlines yesterday morning South Africa variant resistant to the Pfizer vaccine, supposedly Israel shows. So the South Africa variant is not the big variant that is exploding through the United States. That's the uh, British variant, B117. Um, and the numbers, apparently, of resistant Israeli people who have been re-whatever because of the because of the variant is like insanely small it's like eight people or something like that um but so uh there are two things going on one of which is apparently the early uh reporting on this was bad or or it's very hard to understand these things uh because they're epidemiological longitudinal studies that involve complicated percentage numbers and all that and so it's hard to understand them uh but uh, from what I can gather, and I don't really understand it either. I was not good at math, and I'm, I fully acknowledge that, as people know. Um, uh, apparently, there was a misunderstanding of what these numbers might have meant. Uh, corrections issued almost uh, immediately about it. Guys, uh, believe by... it or not, sometimes reporters don't read the study. <laughs> no. <laughs> what? many of you to believe. Yeah. What? I can't. You know, you... That, you know, why do you hate journalism, Eliana? You know what? You're making them feel unsafe. <laughs> You're making reporters feel unsafe. And that's really, uh, they need to speak their truth. And you we are. Had, uh, thor- thoroughness and, and like carefulness is a, a characteristic of white supremacy culture, I'm sure. Yes, no doubt. Okay. So, Abe, um, help me out here if you can. Well, I mean, look, I, you know, even though I'm firmly in the uh, let's stop um, baselessly scaring people uh, about the virus at a time when it looks like we are set to shut this thing down, um, I'm firmly in that camp. At the same time, when I saw the headlines, I was like, oh, boy, this is they they finally got the the bad news that is, you know, sort of um, knocking me back on my heels. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of of the of the of the 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 breakthrough variant news i do know that the understanding of what the percentages mean has been preposterous there was a story in uh uh that that i think cnn uh, wrote yesterday saying something like well you know if uh if a vaccine is uh 95 percent effective and then uh 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 uh, you know, a hundred people uh, 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 are flying in a plane or some, something of the sort. Um, that means that five will have the virus. Um, it was a very strange uh, way to approach this as if the 5% out of the 95, uh, apart from the 95 is positive. Right. Having read about this for all of 24 hours, I feel myself eminently uh uh, equipped to talk about this authoritatively. I believe you have um, a PhD in epidemiology now. No, it's the rough equivalent. Hours. Hours. Yes. Sure. Okay. So please. 
so yeah, apparently this study and its conclusions are really horribly misrepresented in the press. You have some people who are uh, consistent critics of the, of the media's approach to this, who are nevertheless mainstream people, Zainab Tefeki, Nate Silver, who have come out and said that this is, you know, a sort of a bunk study. Um, no squish, former FDA chief Scott Gottlieb on the TV today said, one of other key points that was left out of the analysis is that everyone who got the 1.351 variant, which is the South Africa variant, who had been vaccinated, got the variant before they were fully vaccinated. The sort of thing you might want to include in your analysis of the uh, the terror of these breakthrough infections, which we sort of understand to be something that you would get or you would begin to see and begin to analyze on a clinical level if you had a five-year clinical of this vaccine, which we did not have the luxury of doing. It's the sort of thing that you're going to see on a pretty regular basis. And to Abe's point, there was another story that sort of dovetails with this out of Oregon, I believe, a couple of weeks ago where they said, you know, these, there was like eight people who were fully vaccinated who got the disease. Well, guess what? Out of 1.2 million people who had been vaccinated, that's better than the efficacy rates that we observed in the clinicals of the Pfizer vaccine, which had a 95% efficacy rate. If you had less than 10 people out of 1.2 million that's better than 95%. This is the sort of thing that the context is deliberately left out by reporters because, John, as you've observed, there's a market for this sort of thing. Right. Okay. So just to defend the study itself. So uh, one of the two conductors of the study, uh, Stern Lab at the at Tel Aviv University, uh, went on Twitter to explain that the study had been misinterpreted. Okay, so I just want to read a couple of things here. We wanted to test what type of variant infects the very few vaccinated individuals who go on to become infected with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, to this end, we generated a case control cohort. Every vaccinee was matched with a non-vaccinated individual infected with the virus. Two categories interested us. One, those fully immunized seven-plus days post the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Two, those partially immunized between 14-plus days after the first dose and before seven days after the second dose. Okay. All in all, most infections in both categories were from the British variant. However, we noted eight cases of infection with the South African variant in fully immunized individuals as compared to only one infection in the non-immunized control. Furthermore, focusing on the partially immunized, we noted more breakthrough by the British variant. To summarize, we see evidence for reduced vaccine effectiveness against the British variant, but after two doses, extremely high effectiveness kicks in. We see evidence for reduced vaccine effectiveness against the SA variant, but it does not spread in Israel. We think that this reduced effectiveness occurs only in a short window of time. Uh, 14 days, in cases 14 days post-second dose, and that the South African variant does not spread efficiently. So what this means is <clears throat> get vaccinated and be careful until two weeks after the second dose. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean... The, the vaccine doesn't work against the South African variant, which is what Drudge said. Drudge says South Africa, Pfizer ineffective against variant. 
So once again, I know Matt Drudge. I've known him for you know twenty five years, and he's not an epidemiologist. Last I heard, he were you know I mean, as far as I know, nor is our uh, friends of ours who work for him. They're not epidemiologists, and they went with a scare headline, and it's driving everybody crazy. And it didn't say what it said. And of course, the other problem with this is not only is there a media hunger for this, you might actually look at the Stern Lab study and say. You know, maybe you guys, I mean, it's not that it's bad to issue studies or something like that, but maybe you guys ought to think about what your study is going to do if you just, like, release it out there into the wild. Maybe prep people or, like, do background briefings with somebody you release it to so that it, you, they can, so that they, it can't be willfully misunderstood when you're dealing with a worldwide panic over a a pandemic that has has destroyed the world economy for a year, like maybe be a little more careful and not so excited that you found variations between the British variant and the South African variant. And you're excited because you found something that's nice that you found something. But if what you need to do is go, Oh no, no, like proof rock, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. Then you probably are handling it the wrong way. I just want, also want to add, in terms of the you know reason not not to be panicked by all this, um, the 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 more positive reading of it all is borne out entirely by what's happening in Israel uh, in, in a more general sense. The numbers continue to plummet there in terms of daily cases, deaths, and hospitalizations. Like it, you know, there's no if if there was this breakthrough problem, it, you'd, you'd be seeing it in the larger picture. Right. Um, and again, at, that's eight cases. That's eight cases in a very restricted population that they were looking at, right? It's like a survey. It's not... Anyway, so um, I, I think that's a. I, I just want to say I was yesterday afternoon, I was at the Javits Center, which is the main sort of state vaccination center in New York City in Manhattan, uh, massive convention center. I took my daughter there, who's 16, to get her to get her first dose. It was uh, kind of a remarkable. It was like uh, it was like the dream airport line is what I would say. It's like the airport line without the having to take off your shoes and your jacket and your and just and without even having to go through the the metal detector. Like you're on this very long line, but it just keeps moving. <laughs> you're just like, you never stop walking and you sit down and she got the shot and we walked out and there was a sign standing there that said 399,972 people have been vaccinated at the Javits Center. That's pretty amazing. Okay. This is a city of 8 million people. You can only get vaccinated if you're a New Yorker. 400,000 people have been vaccinated already at this one site. It's April uh, 12th. Um, again, we're not focusing on some of the things that are so remarkable. We keep talking about who's hesitant with the vaccine and what people are driving us crazy and all of this. And the fact is that enormous numbers of people are like excited to get it, going online to get it. You know, the system is good. Everybody there was nice and happy. People are think they're doing a good thing, the nurses, the people who are the National Guardsmen uh, who are there helping to keep order and all of that. People are cheerful and happy and think that they are leading us out of the out of this pandemic. And they are and they don't get enough credit for it. I mean, 
we will, the big fear is that people will stop listening to the public health bureaucracy because they're overcautious and doesn't their their advice doesn't correspond to your experience and what's in front of your eyes. And I think we're probably there now. I mean, if you were really listening to for example, Dr. Anthony Fauci, you would not go into a restaurant if you were vaccinated because he said on MSNBC this weekend that it's still not okay for people who are vaccinated to dine indoors. It's just simply too dangerous. I hate to tell you, but the restaurants are full and have been full for a very long time. People aren't listening to this nonsense anymore. Well, it would be more interesting to lift all the mandates and then see how full the restaurants were. That's We have a false measure of this in my experience which is like it particularly like in new york it's like 25 percent or 35 percent. i don't even know what capacity it is you get outdoors there are people inside restaurants but you know there could be twice as many people so the issue would be it's more like texas i don't know what's going on in texas but so you have no mandates whatsoever and it's basically what the restaurants themselves want to do do they want to have 100 percent capacity and will people go in and crowd themselves in And that's what we don't know. Like, we don't know nationally whether people have decided that the pandemic is over or whether people are saying, you know what, it's safe enough if they're opening up and they're letting you sit there at 35% capacity and all of that, then I'm going to do that. Um, You know, because we're not... We've talked about this a million times on the show, but about 45 minutes outside New York City, the restaurants are full. There's a line out the door. There's one sacrificial booth because no one is enforcing this. Um, if there's, there's, I think it's 50% capacity in my state. I, get, I hate to tell you, the restaurants are much more full than 50% capacity. In fact, if they were a 50% capacity, a whole lot of restaurants would have gone out of business by now. It's just not the case outside of very liberal bastions where people wear masks on the street outside as a matter of course. That's not my experience. We're 40 still, minutes outside New York City. We're still forced to do that, masks on the street outside. Um, but I think at the beginning of the pandemic, you saw... People were worried, and regardless of what the mandates were, they were staying home. And I now think we're seeing the flip side where people who are vaccinated, at least, are less concerned. And again, regardless of what the mandates are, they're going out. Well, there's also the there's also the phenomenon of people who are uh, going out and traveling and doing all kinds of things and then lying about doing it, um, which is a lot of people I know. Who are lying about who are lying about it because they don't want to get you know crap from their friends on social media if they show a picture of themselves somewhere or other. So, uh, so that's the virtue, you know. That's that's whatever you want to call that. Um, and they're allowed to because they're on the internet and everyone gets to attack them. And that's the privacy problem on the internet that is resolvable in part by ExpressVPN, because let's say you show yourself a picture of yourself and you're in Boca Raton and you don't tell anybody you're in Boca Raton, they could maybe figure it out if you show them something on your computer and then you have all these ads from Boca Raton. You know how that happens? Because your data are being sold by by the big tech companies to each other and other people so you can be marketed stuff. And maybe you don't want people to know all that. So... <clears throat> ExpressVPN is your solution. It takes your IP address and it anonymizes it by routing it through an encrypted server and masking it and giving you a random IP address instead shared by other ExpressVPN customers that make it more difficult for third parties to identify you and harvest your data. And it's so easy to use one device. You're on a device, phone, laptop, smart TV. You tap one button, you're protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. 
Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary for <clears throat> more. Um, so um, Donald Trump, uh, there was some kind of fundraising event this weekend. And uh, Trump's uh, for the, uh, was it an RNC meeting? I couldn't even follow the, who cares? I don't even care. Whatever. Trump spoke somewhere with a bunch of Republicans in the room. Josh Mandel got thrown out because he went to try to raise money and they wouldn't let him in. And that's a whole other thing. And I don't know what's going on. And John Boehner is publishing a book in which he calls everybody a blankhead. And uh, so the mood of the Republican, the common mood of the Republican Party is just uh, continues to be absolutely great. And of course, Matt Gates is going around and how about the fact that Matt Gates is both a total sleaze bucket and is apparently being railroaded? Like that's something we haven't even talked about. But uh, the story about Matt Gates, which is ever shifting, it started that he was like vi- guilty of violating the Mann Act, and now apparently his father was being extorted by somebody, some lunatic who was looking for twenty five million dollars to ransom somebody who was probably dead. And this is all seems to be encouraged or manipulated by a lunatic Seminole County tax assessor who was a rich cokehead and uh, lunatic. And so uh, Matt Gates, so there's a lot of t- t- craziness going on in the Republican Party, but let me just put it this way to you, Eliana, as a, as a student of the Republican crack up. When Donald Trump goes and he calls Mitch, M- Mitch McConnell a dumb son of a bitch, uh, forget the word dumb. Does Mitch McConnell care about being called a son of a bitch? I say no. I say being a son of a bitch is part of Mitch McConnell's brand, and Donald Trump is inadvertently extending his brand by calling him a son of a bitch. You know, the Free Beacon likes to rank the McConnell nicknames. Cocaine Mitch, now we got to add dumb son of a bitch to our rankings. We're going to have to go through the whole ranking process again. But, you know, these two, Trump and McConnell, they have disliked each other from... Uh, probably the first time they met, certainly since 2015. This really is nothing new. Uh, And I mean, look at the guys. Do these guys seem like they they don't temperamentally seem like they would be best pals to me? But I agree. Uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, uh, among the things that are top of his concern, uh, top of his list to be concerned about, I think that this ranks pretty low. Apparently, after this meeting um, where Donald Trump whined all the greatest hits from the Trump presidency, the National Republican Senatorial Committee uh, presented the former president with the inaugural first ever Champion for Freedom Award. Talk about a participation trophy. I thought we were against that sort of thing. Um, So Trump added a new wrinkle to his criticism of, you know, the uh, illegitimacy of the election. And Eliana, again, as somebody who does a granular study of some of this, perhaps you are on, he said something, apparently, this is all a game of telephone because uh, there no one was in the room who, uh, the reporters weren't in the room, so they're hearing reports from other people. But apparently he said something about how there was a $500 million lockbox uh, and all of the Biden votes went into some other box, and then there were two boxes, and there was a five hundred million dollar. What it, it? What is the five hundred million dollar lock? Do you know? Because could I get a key? I don't. What is the lock? What is the five hundred million dollar lock? Like you know, drilling down on what the lockbox is, but. You know, what's happened since Trump has been not just out of office, but off of Twitter and off of Facebook is 
um, you know, I, my understanding is he's continued to tell people, some allies, some not allies, um, but whoever's ear he's bending at the time, that he really did win, that there are thousands of ballots that were never counted in Georgia. And I think it does help to answer the question of like, so did he really believe this or was he just saying this because he's willing to win by any means necessary? And I do think uh, you know, Nikki Haley got you know sort of justifiably mocked for telling uh, Tim Alberta, my former colleague, that uh, you know her her response to why she hadn't criticized Trump was that he really believes this, and uh, turns out I think that's accurate. I just want to know what the five hundred million dollar lockbox is now. Look, Trump is somebody who, as I've said many times on this podcast, he works he his his professional career before he became a, a pop culture figure was working in New York real estate, which is dirty. New York state politics is dirty. New York real estate is dirty. It's a zero sum game. You're bidding on a site. Either you get it or you don't get it. It's not like you can go off and start another company. You know, if you're, if your app fails that you can just go start another app, you have to build a building on a plot of land. And that's the only plot of land there at the time and all of that. So people bribe people, people give people job, people do all kinds of things to get to work their will. And that's how he thinks government works. And in many ways, it is the way government works. Uh, but so I think he's uniquely susceptible to the theory that, of course, people want something enough, they'll figure out a way to cheat and get it because he would. And so and everybody in his own business does. And that's and remember when he said that thing about how, yeah, he had Hillary Clinton at his, at his wedding, because that's what you do. That's how you do it. That's how you play the game. Right. Um, I just don't know what a $500 million lockbox is going to do for these votes. You know, So, yeah, he's constructing an entire world in which he won, they lost, and he likes to believe this and all of that. My only question would be whether... Um, uh, without Twitter, without everything else, and the fact that people have said, yeah, yeah, I think, he, I think he won. You know, like, people on the right are like, he won, it was an illegitimate election, and all that. But when he says it, does that, like, make them heat up again? Or is it like, at some point, it's going to be like, you know, Uncle Harold, stop already. Yeah, we, we, we know, we understand no. the IRS, the IRS, the, the audit was unfair, but I can't listen to you anymore. Stop talking about your unfair IRS audit. Well, no. I mean, the problem with Trump is there will always be fresh people. He's not saying the same thing to the same people to a certain extent he is, but there are always going to be like the next Matt Gates who are willing to, a new person, willing to listen to this and tell him how right he was. Uh, I don't think he's like keeping a, a close hold on the number of people he's telling these things to. Well, I mean, I think I think one of the truly bad things about this is that I don't, I don't know that he's telling people this at all. Um, the the Trump conspiracy world works. It's a two directional sort of channel where, yeah, he he comes he generates his own conspiracy theories, but he also amplifies those that are out there and uh, legitimizes and lends credence to the the all sorts of conspiracies that are out. Just because he's not on Twitter doesn't mean there aren't untold who knows millions of of, of you know continuing stop the steal people out there online. They may have this $500 million uh, lockbox theory that he caught wind of and is now sort of giving them a wink. And that's that's the bad, dangerous part of it. Exactly. Now, listen, uh, you know, uh, this is enough to give you a bad back. 
bad backs result of stress, some mental stress, some physical stress. X chair, that's your answer. The X chair, that amazing massager heat therapy chair I've been telling you about with the patented uh, dynamic lumbar support and the XHMT technology that delivers heat therapy, uh, physical therapy to your core, uh, makes sitting in the chair a dream. It is a dream to sit in the X chair. You'll love it. Uh, it, it, it makes it a pleasure to work at home. Um, I got one and I can't tell you how much better it's made my life. Uh, so go to xchaircommentary.com for $100 off. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. It's the luxury supercar of office chairs, xchaircommentary.com or call 1-800-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Again, X, the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com now and use code X wheels for free X wheel blade casters, X chair commentary.com. Eliana, what fun stuff can you tell us about that people can find at freebeacon.com? Thank you for asking. I actually was just looking at uh, the X chair. Wow. Um, I highly (laughs) recommend Andrew Stiles' book review of the Hunter Biden book, um, which is fantastic. And uh, also following the beacon for the latest on the various uh, controversial Biden nominees. But that book review, um, hit it up. I want to praise you. Uh, it's very important. One area in which uh, we have both a common interest and a common understanding. Uh, uh, the Free Beacon is a place to go if you want granular daily evidence of the rising comfort level with uh, old-time anti-Semitism being displayed by liberals and the left. I'm looking at the site right now. We have Kristen Clark, the Justice Department nominee. Uh, accused of anti-Semitism, Randy Weingarten, whom I ranted about last week, uh, people may remember uh, for her disgusting um, uh, de- declaration that Jews are part of the ownership class, uh, Penn um, rejecting the international definition of anti-Semitism, and, and many other things. So the Free Beacon is a great place to look for that. And I just want to conclude with a quick story. Mayor Soloveitchik, who is commentaries, Jewish commentary columnist monthly, a a rabbi at the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue um, in in New York. Uh, I just edited a piece uh, by him that will be in our May issue, which we are closing this week. Um, And I was really started. It's a beautiful piece. It's about in Israel Independence Day and Holocaust Remembrance Day, how they, they, they take place in very close proximity and why they do. And he tells a story about the liberation of Bergen-Belsen in April 1945. Um, uh, And a broadcast made by the BBC's Patrick Walker at the time. It was a Friday night service. And uh, if you listen to it, uh, Walker thought that they were just doing concluding prayers. But in fact, they were singing... Hatikva. Hatikva is the a poem that was written that is the sort of found is now become the uh, anthem. Uh, it's the national anthem of Israel, the hope. And um, the story that he tells is of a woman singing her voice 
uh, rises very loudly, um, uh, sings it, and uh, at Bergen-Belsen, uh, uh, a the British uh, a British chaplain Jewish chaplain officiated at the wedding of Norman Tugel, uh, a British Jewish soldier who had fallen in love with a survivor of Belson named Gina Goldfinger, whose dress is in the Imperial War Museum. It was made out of a British parachute, and um, so uh, Gina Tugel died in 2018. Uh, at the age of 95, I think, uh, had they, the two girls had three children and a whole bunch of grandchildren. And uh, she became a witness. She apparently had been one of the comforters of Anne Frank as Anne Frank was dying of typhus uh, in the camps. Uh, it's just sort of an extraordinary story. And she she wrote a book about her experience. She was one of those people who was witness in Britain uh, where uh, to, to the horrors of the Holocaust and spoke at events and met the queen and all of that. Um, and at her, right after her funeral in 2018, uh, her grandson, who was a, uh, a cantor, uh, a chazan, uh, said she, <clears throat> she lit a candle and we are going to keep it burning. Because she wrote a book called I, I Lit a Candle uh, about the memorialization. People have asked me many times why I conclude this podcast by saying keep the candle burning. And I have to tell you, I don't know, actually. I don't know where the phrase came from, why it popped into my head. We started doing it uh, when we went daily a year ago. Um, and uh, reading Sully's uh, piece and then looking up uh, the story of Gina Goldfinger, I feel a weird beshertness here, as though somehow through the mists of time, uh, this uh, this is what we do at commentary. We are keep just as uh, Gina Tugel did, just as her grandson intends to, um, and just as Sully's column uh, reveals, uh, commentary's mission and purpose is to keep the candle burning, not only the candle of witness to the Holocaust, the witness to the horrors of the Jewish people, but the the miracle of the state of Israel, the miracle of Western culture, and uh, and the fact that um, in every in every generation they rise against the Jewish people to destroy us, and the Holy One, blessed be He, stays their hand. And right now we see a whole world of people who are looking to destroy Western civilization and the United States. And I believe the same will be true, but that can only happen if people keep the candle burning. So uh, this was a pretty stunning experience for me to read this piece and then look up the story of Gina Goldfinger Tugel. And so I feel uh, I feel a connection uh, to the to the eternal here uh, for once as we conclude this podcast. Eliana Johnson, thank you so much for joining us, and for Abe and Noah and the absent Christine Rosen. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.